0: Good morning. It's good to see you. Good morning to those online as well. Thank you for joining with us. I'm James, one of the pastors here. And for those of you that would know me, you know I was born in Scotland, but I actually grew up most of my childhood in a little place called Northern Ireland, which To give you some context, population-wise is not much bigger than Calgary, and geography-wise is not a ton much bigger than Greater Calgary either, but a little country filled with chaos. This morning, having very little sermon idea, I thought I would give you a lecture on the history of Irish politics. It's very, very interesting. Sit back, get your cup of coffee. I'll try to be brief. Actually, I am going to do some of it, but only a press, a little tiny bit, of an article that a guy called David Graham wrote in The Atlantic several years ago. And part of the reason is we're looking at an unlikely friendship today. And I want to tell you the story of a very unlikely friendship that happened at least in my lifetime. Growing up that country, political leaders, two names, you may or may not have heard of them, doesn't really matter if you have. One was called Martin McGuinness, the other was Ian Paisley. The idea that these two men could ever become friends was a very stark impossibility. One was a fiery, Protestant, hellfire-and-brimstone preacher and politician. The other was raised in a Roman Catholic home and became a militant, violent young man, young enough to be the first one's son. They were in opposite lines of battle lines, metaphorically, and quite often literally, too, for decades. The one thing they shared in common was not very helpful. It was a mutual disdain, if not hatred, of each other. McGuinness, when he was a young man, joined the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and dropped out of school. He was their number two man in a town called Derry by 1972, when British soldiers opened fire in a protest march that was taking place on a Sunday afternoon. They were protesting against the arrest of suspected terrorists and in their internment in prison without trial. And when violence broke out, 14 people, I believe it was, were murdered that day by British troops, a just, an injustice that was only in a sense, dealt with very, very recently, trying to figure out what happened. McGuinness was widely believed to have become eventually the chief of staff of the IRA in the 1970s and 80s, convicted twice, once for belonging to a prescribed terrorist organization, once for being caught with explosives and ammunition. He eventually became chief negotiator for a political party called Sinn Féin. The words mean ourselves alone. It was the political wing of the IRA and he began to be their person during talks. The talks that led to what would become known as a Good Friday Agreement that would begin a process in 1998 of bringing change and peace to a tiny little country. Every major political party joined in this conversation and peace process except one that was called the DUP because the Irish love three-letter acronyms. If you don't figure it out, never go there. You'll say the wrong thing. DUP stood for Democratic Unionist Party. Everybody took part except Ian Paisley and his DUP friends. In 2001, as a process was continuing, McGuinness admitted to actually having been an IRA member which was viewed by some as an essential truth that had to be told if process was going to move forward. He was trying to bring his people to the point of surrendering weapons. By then, he was serving as Minister of Education, but Paisley and his DUP still didn't like him very much and tried to have him charged with war crimes and brought before a war crimes tribunal. But the peace process ground slowly on. By 2006, what would be known as the St. Andrew's Agreement laid out a path towards devolution of power from the British government in London, to some of it, at least in Northern Ireland. But as part of that deal, the DUP and Sinn Féin would have to learn how to share power together. And in ratification in 2007 led to a bizarre situation where Ian Paisley was elected as First Minister and Martin McGuinness was elected as Deputy First Minister. Not exactly a great start, you might think, to finding peace. McGuinness said this at the time, I've always believed throughout the course of my political life that Ian Paisley was a bitter, very harsh person who was really only interested in his political opinion holding sway. I'm not offering up what he thought about me because obviously he probably had as poor opinion of me as I had of him. And yet, and yet these two people forged a working relationship. To the surprise of just about everybody, when their first day of government, when they got into the building, Stormont, the kind of political parliament building, they showed up and they asked the British to leave together. The British, being of kind heart, left and took all the light bulbs with them as a gesture of sort of screw you. (laughs) Or unscrew you, I suppose. Yeah, you got to take the bulb out. To their surprise, these two guys, forced to work with each other, learned to enjoy each other's company, even though their politics remained far apart for all of their lives. Paisley was unstinting in his commitment that Northern Ireland should remain an integral part of the UK. McGuinness never gave up once his hope that Northern Ireland would be reunited with the Republic of Ireland in one island, one people, one government. They never let go of that. But somehow, they managed to work together and do more than work together to build a relationship together. They were often seen laughing and smiling together. The press began to call them the Chuckle Brothers, named after a comedy duo that BBC used to hold sometimes. Their partnership in many ways was short-lived. Paisley had to retire but 13 months after being elected first minister. And after a while, he succumbed to illness and eventually died. His wife, Eileen, commented that during the last phase of his illness, Martin McGuinness would text him often, to see how he was doing, to wish him well, and let him know he was thinking about him. Her own words, she says this, it gave Ian a lot of happiness as well to know that he had left that impression with Martin. His friendship with Martin McGuinness meant something very special to him. After Paisley died, McGuinness himself said this about his friend, despite our differences, I found him to be a charismatic and powerful personality. He always treated me and those who worked with me with respect and courtesy. The peace process and I have lost a friend. McGuinness remained as as Deputy First Minister. He worked with Paisley's successor, Peter Robinson, but they were never personally close. And eventually McGuinness had to retire. And not long after he resigned, he actually died a couple of months later himself. When he left Stormont, the political scene and retirement, he was a controversial figure. Revered by many for his role in the peace process that he actually brought a terrorist organization to surrender its weapons and enter terms of peace. But hated by others who lost family members in all of the violence. A story that reached back literally hundreds and hundreds of years. One member of parliament praised McGinnis, though, at the very end of his life, saying this. I can say thank you honestly and humbly And recognize the remarkable journey Martin McGuinness went on that has not only saved lives, but made the lives of countless people in Northern Ireland. That Member of Parliament was Ian Paisley Jr., the man's son. An unlikely friendship. It may mean very little to you. In the world I grew up in, it was the most bizarre and yet hopeful thing I think I've ever witnessed today we 're in our series we 're calling unexpected acts, looking at the weird the unexpected things that God is doing in the first century church and Today, I want us to look at another very unlikely friendship there 's all sorts of stories and acts that are interesting, all sorts of people that start following jesus that you 'd be surprised at, not just as twelve disciples people that weren't even Jewish by faith, people that we would call Samaritans, somebody from Ethiopia, somebody that came as part of the Roman army, a centurion. But this particular story is very unique. It's the story of a guy called Saul. If ever there was a high achiever in his world, it was Saul. He was super smart, went to the best schools, was educated beyond belief, set up to become a famous teacher within his own lifetime. He was also an activist, we'd call him a political activist, trying to make sure things were getting pushed forward. He worked with the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem to see that things got done. Jesus had been crucified. People were claiming that he'd been raised from the dead. And faith in this Jesus was spreading like wildfire. The consensus was, if somebody didn't nip this in the bud and bring it to a halt, people were going to lose positions of authority and power and influence and wealth. Somebody had to do something. The story of what happened to Saul is recorded three times in the book of Acts, in chapters 9, 22, and 26. In fact, Saul, who later would take the name Paul, tells of it in several of his own letters as well. It begins in Acts 9 in verse 1 with Saul's search and destroy mission. Let me read part of it to you. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul's plan was to build a firewall around the spread of Christian faith. You see, somehow or other, he'd figured out exactly what Jesus had told his friends, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the young man that he'd witnessed being stoned to death, Stephen, had taken a plan to take the words of Jesus and go to Greek-speaking congregations within the Jewish faith because then the word could go further and further than just Hebrew or Aramaic speakers alone. And so the idea was that he would firewall around us. People in Jerusalem knew about Jesus. People in Judea already knew about Jesus. People in Samaria knew about Jesus. But the next concentric circle, he would firewall it. And the next global city to the northeast of Jerusalem would have been Damascus that's where he was going to go if he could go there he could get out ahead and stop this before it got any further these people weren't simply going to be arrested by him they were going to be transported executed slaughtered that was the plan they're called followers of the way A designation that they perhaps got, it was their earliest name at least, maybe from John the Baptist who said he was preparing the way for Jesus and John got that idea from the prophet Isaiah who once said, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a pathway for our God. This idea of the way, it should remind us of something in particular, that faith is not static It isn't static. It's not simply a a declaration of beliefs or a creedal statement. It's not simply about some decision you made however many years ago that has very little impact on your life. Being a follower of the way implies a journey that is continuous and changing. Something is moving in our lives. It's a pledging allegiance to Jesus, following in his way, following his example, living the life that he has asked us to live which means often we stand out as being weird, unusual, or odd. This is the way. Ah, see, the Star Wars fans know what I'm talking about. Everybody else is like, what? Watch some TV, people. But let's catch up with Saul. He is on his own way in verse 3, and we read these words together. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. It's about a 250-kilometer journey from Damascus to Jerusalem, along a road called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. That's a long way to go on foot. And what Paul didn't know is when he set off, Saul rather, on this journey to Damascus, the road had changed. It was now inhabited, inhabited by the wayfaring Spirit of God, something unexpected is going to happen. Suddenly there's a light flashing, Saul falls over. There's no actual mention that he fell off a horse. Though, if you look at paintings that people have made of this, there's always a horse wondering what's going on. But (laughs) nevertheless, there's no horse in the Bible. He falls down, but he hears the voice saying, Saul, Saul. The fancy way of describing that double name is they call it a double vocative, whatever that means. I think it's something like your mother using your first and your middle name and you know you are in big trouble. Whatever it is you've done, you shouldn't have done it. And God speaks to him like this. In fact, God speaks often in the Bible like this, using double names like that. Genesis 22, Abraham, Abraham. When God intervenes to save the life of his son, Isaac. Or Genesis 46, Jacob, Jacob. And God gets him to take his family to Egypt because of the impending famine so that they can have food and live. Exodus chapter three, in a wilderness when a bush has caught fire and God shouts out, Moses, Moses. And Moses hears the call and commission of God to go and rescue his people in Israel. Or a little boy trying to get to sleep at nighttime, 1 Samuel 3, he hears his name, Samuel, Samuel. And a little boy learns to listen for God. It's a big deal. Here's all I'm saying if one day you hear God say your name twice, listen. It's a big deal. <laughs> Pay attention and the voice asks him why do you persecute me Saul's got no clue he can't see a thing because of the flashing light he's no idea who's talking but he knows he's in trouble so he asks the fairly obvious question who are you Lord like kind of like sir what have I done who are you how can I make it right and the voice responds I am Jesus I'm Jesus Jesus It would have shocked shocked him to the core. This is not what he thought would ever have happened in his life. As the followers of the way, he was persecuting them because this Jesus was dead. These people were crazy and somebody needed to do something about it. The revelation that this Jesus who had been crucified and buried and they said was alive, that he actually was alive, would have floored him. It literally did. And as you think about the words, his whole world is crumbling beneath his feet. You see, that, that word Lord that Paul uses there, Saul uses to address the voice, in his context, it means a little more than just Mr. or Sir. It's how Jewish people would sometimes refer to God because they wouldn't want to use that holy name that we find described by th- four letters in our Bible. We sometimes pronounce it Yahweh. They would choose not to say that and instead refer to God as Lord. And in fact, Jesus responds equally with an interesting set of words when he says, I am Jesus, because the other way God would name himself is, I am. And this voice, the one that Saul addresses as Lord says, I am Jesus. Do you see it? Can you hear it? I am Jesus. The person that he thought was cursed by God because God's word said, cursed is anybody who hung on a tree and Jesus was crucified on a wooden tree. This person is not just alive. This person, Jesus, is God. The God who is invisible and all-powerful is the very real, tangible, physical, vulnerable, dead, and now alive, Jesus. I don't think we can begin to imagine what this felt like for Saul or what was going on in his head at this moment, simply that this was all wrong. His world had collapsed in front of him. And then the voice, Jesus says this, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Not only is Jesus God, but the pain and suffering of his people, the followers of the way are his suffering too. Not only is God found in frail human flesh that can be crucified on a tree, but God inhabits his people. He's not passive, just watching from the sky as they suffer, feeling sorry for them. He's part of it. Jesus is never aloof from our pain, but lives in our pain with us. There's no category for this in Saul's world. God in human flesh. And people that are so united with him that they're actually his body. He's dumbfounded. His mind is reeling. He's got no words for this. Everything is changing and in flux. And now he's helpless. He can't see. Not so much that God's getting his own back on him and throws him to the ground and makes him blind and go, that'll teach you. It's more like an enacted story, the story of the gospel. The good news. Saul's experiencing a reversal, if you like. He thought he could see, but now he's blind. He's blind. He was going to lead people back to Jerusalem. Now he needs led by the hand into Damascus. Everything is changing. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he's praying. He's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about many from this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer, for the sake of my name. And here we encounter the other half of this unlikely friendship, a guy called Ananias. I kind of love his name, really, because he's only one letter away from being a pineapple, Ananas. But that's. <laughs> we don't know how Ananias found out about Jesus. We don't know how or when the good news of Jesus made it to Damascus. It was probably very early, probably the same year that Jesus rose from the dead in the sense that people had come for the fig festival of Pentecost. There were people from all over the place and they heard Peter preach that Jesus was alive. Perhaps some of them had taken the story back with them. We're not really sure. But Ananias is one of the followers of Jesus, a follower of the way living there. He's following this man who claims to be God. He's likely one of those who was tagged by Saul for his arrest. His name was probably in the little book. He was waiting to be transported off to Jerusalem, but instead he's been chosen by God to come alongside the very person who's there to kill him. And Ananias gives voice to his greatest fear. Everybody knew Saul was coming, and everybody knew why he was coming. They'd heard about the havoc that he had wreaked on the church in Jerusalem. Nobody was looking forward to meeting him. They were afraid, and all of their fears centered around this one guy. He knew that Saul was in Damascus, not to say hi, but with authority from the chief priests to bind everybody who calls in the name of Jesus. To go and see Saul would be to put himself in the hands of the man who was desperately trying to capture him. It would be to deliver himself up for what fate only held for him. He didn't want to throw his life away on an improbable mission. But God doesn't argue with Ananias. He doesn't really answer any of Ananias' misgivings. He just says to him, go. And so a disciple faces a decision what will he do? What would you do if you were in that situation? Would you go? From our perspective, maybe 2,000 years later, it doesn't seem like such a bad option, really, does it? I mean, you get to go and be along with the guy who's going to be the Apostle Paul. He'll write half the New Testament. You get to be his mentor, teach him all about Jesus, give him and set him up for success. I mean, great job. I'll try that. But from Ananias' perspective, 2,000 years ago, like you've got to be kidding God. There's got to be some other way of doing this than sending me. He's going to kill me. This is a suicide job. But he knows enough about Jesus to trust and to obey. Ananias really functions in this story as a model disciple for us to have a good long look at to pause and think about his choices. He's got no official status. He's not like Peter, you know, number one in the disciples, or at least the loudmouth who's always doing all the talking. He's not that. He's not John, Jesus' best pal, and they're always having conversations together. He's got no official status. He's not one of the heroes like James who would be executed in Jerusalem. Or This isn't who he is. He's just an ordinary guy. He walks onto the scene. We read about him for a few verses, and we never hear of him ever again. He just has his little part to play like us. But like him, we are also called to trust and obey. And so we read verse 17. Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you in your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Ananias does what God asks him to do. He heads off to find Saul. He goes to the house of a guy called Judas on Straight Street in Damascus. The street's still there. And without much ado, he wanders in. He finds Saul sitting there, puts his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. It's unbelievable. His gracious spirit towards his enemy is remarkable. It's a remarkable story of how God's transforming grace can change human lives and friendships. Saul might not be able to see just at that moment, but he could feel somebody touching him embracing him, calling him brother. He can feel and hear those remarkable words, brother Saul, and an unlikely friendship begins. And as Ananias places his hands on Saul, his eyes are healed. He can see again. Yes, physically. He can look around the room. But it's as though he regains spiritual sight. There is so much more. He's in the light. He's in the know. He sees and figures out and understands what's going on and how God has intervened in his life in a remarkable way. He's filled with the Holy Spirit in the moment. And everything changes for him because this story is not simply an unlikely friendship between Saul and Ananias. It's an even more unlikely friendship between Saul and Jesus. Jesus once said to his closest friends I don't call you servants any longer Because a servant doesn't know what the master is doing But I have called you friends Because I've made known to you everything I have heard from my father Saul has moved into this category the friend zone Although I think we mean something else by that But anyway But he's baptised Because that's what followers of Jesus do. We pledge allegiance to Jesus publicly when we're baptized. It's the sign of the turnaround that Saul had. It's the sign of a turnaround in our lives that God's grace is changing us. A very visible expression of the reality that we have become united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. His life is now our life. And just as the voice told Saul, Jesus lives in and through us. Our next baptism weekend is going to be May 13 and 14 in all of our campuses and congregations. And if you, like Saul, have encountered Jesus, I want to encourage you to make that decision to be baptized, to publicly pledge your allegiance to Jesus in that moment, to stand publicly before others as we get to celebrate with you the turnaround in your life that Jesus has made. And as you surrender to him and allow him to completely transform you, you can text baptism to that number that always a pops up on our screens at times and we'll get all the information to you Saul he's welcomed as a brother he receives his sight he's filled with the Holy Spirit he's baptized and then he has something to eat I love the Bible with all this stuff you get all the sort of big spiritual highlights and then they had sort of sandwiches and fries and things afterwards but most of all I love the story because it's a story of transformation the pursuer turned out to be the one pursued by Jesus. The one sent to arrest has been arrested by the Lord himself. The person with power is overthrown by God's love. The one who wanted to lead others away in chains is now being led into the city. The guy who would lay hands on others has somebody gently lay hands on him. The man who is blind can now see. The one who is their foe is now their family. The one who was in a rush is learning to wait on God. The adversary became the apostle to the nations. The antagonist against Jesus becomes the protagonist who will spread his name everywhere he goes. The persecutor will one day be persecuted by the authorities himself and the man called Saul will take the name Paul. But what about us? I mean, what do we learn through these unlikely friendships, the story of Saul and Ananias and Jesus? Seems to me that we can learn God always takes the initiative. Sometimes I know it feels like we're the people searching for God. Where are you? Why are you hiding? Why do you never talk to me? And it feels as though we've got to make so much effort at times to, to reach out and find where God is. Or we've got to make all the decision all by ourselves to follow him and struggle on this journey that we call the way. But God, God always takes the initiative. He always makes the first move. He interrupted Saul in his journey towards Damascus. He interrupted Ananias, who was busy quivering at home, and tasked him with a ministry. God always takes the initiative. And God can transform anybody. Is there somebody in your life or your world that you think, man, they could never change? God could never reach this person, or at least I don't know how he could. Maybe it's an estranged family member. Maybe it's a quirky neighbor. Maybe it's a a long-distant relationship that's now become an enemy. Maybe it's a rival at work. Maybe you could think of a radicalized Muslim or a a bigoted Christian nationalist. When I read Acts chapter 9, I'm struck by the fact that God can transform anybody's life. Including the people we think seem far beyond God's reach or grace. Saul, the killer of Jesus' disciples, would become one of them. Because God can transform anybody. It means that all of us need a personal encounter with Jesus. It may not be quite as dramatic with flashing lights and voices... But we all need to encounter Jesus for ourselves. After all, Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We need to know him. Have you met Jesus yet? Really? Have you met Jesus yet? It's a big question. Do you know him? Because all of us need a personal encounter with Jesus. And Jesus calls us by name. There's no follower of Jesus that's anonymous. I look out at you and my memory fades at times and you're trying to find a name. I don't know. Not that it's so with Jesus. We're all met by him personally. We're all confronted by truth. All of us personally need to move from darkness towards light just like Saul. And in his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, everything changed. God knows you by name. And I want you to know this morning, Jesus is here calling you by name. And so we're welcomed into community. Ananias welcomed him with the words, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. God created us to belong. He made us in his image to be in relationship with him and with each other. Jesus sacrificed his own life to deal with the sin problem, the things that separate us from God and from one another that are always ruinous to relationships so that we could belong. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us as God's people to assure us we belong and to transform us so we learn how to get along at times. He enfolds us into the church, his community, his body, the family of God where we experience belonging because we're welcomed into community and Ananias, an ordinary guy, we never hear or see of him again is commissioned to go and welcome Saul into the family and you need to know Jesus has commissioned us, you to welcome others into the family here's something I'd like you to do for me I'm not going to really embarrass you, but I would like you to try something for me if you're here in the big room and you know plenty of people here, like not just one or two of the people you're sitting beside, if you know plenty of people here, like a bunch of folk, would you stand up just for a minute and stay standing? I won't take too long. Just if you actually know a whole bunch of people here, stand up. If you don't, just keep your seats and wait there. That's okay. Nothing strange is gonna happen. Lots of people here know lots of people. And have a look around, quick. Lots of people don't. That's just reality. In a big building like this or a big room, it can be challenging to be known. So standing or sitting, here's what I'd like you to try. It won't kill you. It might be awkward, but it won't kill you. I wonder if you could just reach somebody who you don't know or are still sitting if you're standing or the other way around. Say hi to them. Tell them your name. It's not all that difficult. It's not more than that I'd love you to do. Just go and talk to somebody for a minute. Tell them your name. Say hello to them. Welcome them. Call them brother sister. Like Ananias and Saul. And if you are online, say hi in the chat. One of the hosts right now will be able to respond to you and be part of that conversation with you there. So Lord Jesus, today as we talk and we chat and we pray, we surrender our lives completely to you. Help us to build community and unlikely relationships where you're honored and glorified in your church, we pray. Amen. You don't need to be quiet for me. I'm happy for you to keep talking. But if you do need to pray, you want to pray to know Jesus. You want to pray because something's going on in your lives. Our prayer team's coming right now. And if that feels awkward, then just text the word prayer and somebody will be in touch with you. But we love to pray with you. If you want to know what could be next in your journey of following Jesus on Main Street, when you leave the big room, look at the sign that says next. It'll take you to the video wall. You'll find somebody there to talk with. I'll help you in your journey. And we pray together that Jesus would reign and rule in your lives. And so, as we leave chatting, having fun, talking to one another, welcoming brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, always. Amen.